Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Sounds like a fun podcast. Right? Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Stephen. And I'm Shannon. Here we reflect on our experience as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today we are discussing the voyage of the Dawn Treader, chapters 1 through 4. Today's episode starts in the middle of our discussion on chapters 1 through 4, so be sure to catch up on part 1 before listening to this episode. Should we do a deep dive into Reepicheep. He has a very important storyline in this book. He does. In Prince Caspian, he was the comic relief. Yes. In this story, he is a central driving force to the whole point of the book. Now, Reepicheep, great character. We get a little insight into when Reepicheep was a baby because there was this dryad that spoke a prophecy over him. Mm. Do you want to read it? Where the sky and water meet. Where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek, there is the utter east. Mm. So it's like his whole life has been building up to this seeking of this country, which Reepicheep believes is Aslan's country. He doesn't know what he'll find, but he wants to find that undefined something. And as Reepicheep himself says, I do not know what it means but the spell of it has been on me all my life. Mm. I looked up this article by Matt Michalatos from Tor.com, which I read one of his articles about um, Lucy and Susan's relationship with Aslan, Mm. I think in one of our Language in the Wardrobe episodes. But he said about Reepicheep's journey, During all their adventures in this novel, Reepicheep stays focused on his eventual goal, which, unlike the others, is not to find the seven missing lords, but rather to find Aslan's country. Mm -hmm. He wants to live with Aslan in his presence. That's it. That's really the core of the book. But every other thing in life, gold or riches, power, quests, means very little in the face of leaving this world and entering the next there's not a lot of mystery in Lewis's intended metaphor of Aslan's country, what it is, but Lewis explained it at least once in a letter when he said, of course, anyone in our world who devotes his whole life to seeking heaven will be like Reepicheep. There's something so captivating about that yeah. and about Reepicheep's journey, isn't there? In one of the letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to a child who was a fan of this, he gave a very brief, like, one-phrase summary of each book in the Chronicles of Narnia explaining what it really meant. Yeah. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he said, was about the spiritual life. Mm, interesting. And I think really what he was talking about was Reepicheep's journey. He has that longing, and he's on a journey trying to find that something, and that is what the spiritual life for C.S. Lewis is. It's that journey in pursuit of that something, that good, that great thing that lies beyond yeah. the horizon. Yeah. That's what Reepicheep is in search of. That's so powerful. And we see throughout this book, you know, the spiritual life being played out in a lot of character development through the eyes of the other characters things in the mind that we deal with, or even like we were just talking about with Eustace, stories that we tell ourselves and that all these things have to do with 
the spiritual life and that journey towards Aslan's country. Eustace is on a journey too, and as we'll talk about more later in the book, he undergoes a transformation. Yes. He goes a, undergoes a fundamental metamorphosis of who he is, and Literally. that's part of the spiritual life yeah. too. One thing that stood out to me, there was a, a scene in the book, just the image of Reepicheep being always at the front of the Dawn Treader, gazing mm. out at the eastern horizon. Mm. That image just yeah. captures so powerfully what this is about. And it captures the emotion of Sehnsucht. Sehnsucht is a German word that C.S. Lewis uses in Surprised by Joy, his spiritual autobiography, to talk about his own longing for the transcendent that he has felt, mm. uh, to talk about joy, the desire for something beyond this world, the desire that is itself more desirable than any satisfaction. Yeah. Sehnsucht, that longing. It's that being surprised by joy. Yes. Yeah. Particularly seen as a deep existential longing. Yes. For something undefined. Yeah. Can we talk about Lucy a little bit? Yes. I feel like if Prince Caspian sort of centraled a lot, I mean, through Lucy, obviously, but also through Peter, like as a king, you know what I mean? Like what Peter was like as a king. Now, I think this book in The Voyage of Tondra, we get to see a little bit more insight into what Lucy was like as a queen. Mm. Did you notice that while reading this? Say more. Well, here's this quote from when Lucy, Caspian gives Lucy her room in on the Dawn Treader, it says, Lucy found herself was much at home as if she had been in Caspian's cabin for weeks and the motion of the ship did not worry her. For in the days of old, when she had been a queen in Narnia, she had done a good deal of voyaging. Caspian's mm. shoes, sandals, and sea boots were hopelessly big, but she did not mind going barefoot on board ship. When she had finished dressing, she looked out of her window at the water rushing past and took a deep, long breath. She felt quite sure they were in for a lovely time. And also, uh, she mentions that when they go explore the island of Falamath, she remembers how she would just stroll on that island when she was a queen in Narnia. Mm. And we also see a lot of the crew on the ship treating her like a lady and reap a cheap trying to like protect her honor in certain instances <laughs> and whatever. But like she is like, a, how old did we say she was? Nine? Eight, nine, and ten. Is she ten here? She would be ten here. She's ten here. A ten-year-old girl. Like, this is a little girl who everybody respects and honors as a queen. And I have to say, she has a queenly bearing about exactly, her. Exactly. That's my point. And she has a deep point. soul. And she yes. has a deep soul. I am so fascinated by the character of Lucy, specifically in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The character of Lucy in general is great, but she has a maturity about her in this book that she hasn't had yes. before. Yes. Lucy in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is one of my favorite characters in all of the Chronicles yes. of Narnia, undoubtedly. Oh my god! And gosh. I think we'll get to see this more and more as the book progresses. She really does have a depth to her. There's that one time, I think even when you said she uh, enjoys walking around Felimath, there's a loneliness to it, but it's a certain kind of, lo it's a beautiful kind yeah. of loneliness. But we do really get an insight into, she. she's Lucy the Valiant. We get that mm -hmm. insight into her, she has, still has that spirit in a 10-year-old's body of just being this noble, wise queen that everybody respects as a leader, honestly. 
And yet she still has the childlike faith and wonder that the Lucy of the first two exactly, books had. Exactly. Although it just looks a little bit older now, the fundamental kernel is still there. Yeah. I think it's interesting that we don't get we don't read a lot of the story from Edmund's perspective, especially in this first part. Hmm. That's a good observation. Maybe there are just too many characters to dive into. That Lewis doesn't have time at the moment. Yeah, that's true. All right, so we've talked about characters. I think soon we're going to want to start talking about plot and what happened at the Lone Islands. Yes, a big part of this section. Maybe before that, though, we can um, talk about the connections to Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia. If you haven't listened to our special episode, Planet Narnia... I can go back and do that. I'm doing background music. Thank you for the background music. It's like we're on a space journey. Planet Narnia. So each of the Chronicles of Narnia is associated with one of the seven planets of the medieval worldview. I wonder what planet is the Voyage of the Dawn Treader associated with? What's your confession? I don't remember. You don't remember? (laughs) Well, I think part of why it might be so hard to remember is that we don't think of it as a planet. Okay. The planet is the sun. Soul, S-O-L. right? Oh my gosh! Of course, of course. Of how course how did I forget that? Now, what does it mean that the voyage of the Dawn Treader is associated with the sun? It means a great number of things, but the sun features prominently in this book in a number of ways. The whole journey is a journey toward the east, mm. toward the place of the sun. The sun, in the medieval worldview, is the philosopher's orb. It is. It shines on everything and makes things visible. Mm. It is by the light of the sun that we see everything else. It brings light. It can also bring transformation. It's associated oh. with gold and thus also with alchemy, the turning of things into gold. Oh. When the sun shines on the ocean water, the water appears to turn into gold. But the alchemy of the sun changing from one thing into another, making things visible, turning things into gold. We will see this quite a lot in the yeah, Voyage of the Yeah, we will, especially in the next episode, let me tell you. Before we dive too much into other things associated with the sun, let's read the section from Lewis's poem, The Planets, that talks about the sun. Far beyond her, that is Venus, the planet Venus, the heaven's highway hums and trembles drums and dindles to the driven thunder of soul's chariot soul as in the sun s-o-l whose sword of light hurts and humbles beheld only of eagle's eye when his arrow glances through mortal mind mists are parted and mild as morning the mellow wisdom breathes o'er the breast broadening eastward clear and cloudless In a closed garden, unbound her burden, his beams foster soul in secret, where the spoil puts forth paradisal palm, and pure fountains turn and re-temper, touching coolly the uncomely common to cordial gold, whose ore also in earth's matrix is print and pressure of his proud signet on the wax of the world. He is the worshipped male, the earth's husband, all beholding Archchemic Eye. Archchemic Eye. Archchemic, the chief alchemist. Yeah. The one who transforms, who turns things to gold. For Lewis, 
I think the sun is also associated in a particular way with God. Mm. Um, because for I think for Lewis, God is the life giver. Life giver. God is the one who brings clarity and makes thing makes things clear. Um, in a lot of uh, religions, the sun is worshipped as a deity. In uh, in the Greek religion, Apollo was the god of the sun. One of the stories in Norse mythology that always captivated Lewis, even before he was a Christian, was the story of Balder, the Norse god who was actually the god of the sun, the oh. son of Odin, who died and came back to life again. Oh. And Lewis saw this as pointing to Christ. That's why he's called the Earth's husband, all-beholding archchemic eye, the yeah. sun. Yeah, interesting. So there's a lot There's a lot that we see. There are a lot of characteristics that the sun has. It, the discarded image, Lewis's book, also points out that he makes people wise and liberal, Liberal as in generous. That's one thing. One thing associated with the sun. I think we see this come up in the voyage of the dawn treader because Caspian, for example, gives Drinian a better chamber than his own. He yeah. gives um, he gives wine and gifts to the soldiers in the Lone Islands. Oh yeah, and other things like that. I have a question. Yes. It seems like Lewis would have a point to each of these stops that the voyage, the dawn treader makes. Because it's, like you said, it's a very episodic story. Mm -hmm. It seems like he would have maybe like a different theme for each stop. So I, mm. I tried to pay attention to that. And I've been reading ahead for our next episode. But the only, I only see like one common theme in each of the stops. And it's greed. Mm, interesting. Does that have anything to do with the sun? I think it has a lot to do with gold. Okay. Gold and go. money, pecuniary gain. Yeah. Apollo is the god of the sun in the ancient Greek mythology. Apollo is the one who causes disease. There was plague on Terebinthia as the voyage of the as the Dawn Treader sailed by. Oh. So the sun and Apollo are showing up there oh. in a mysterious way. If you think about it, you know, the heat of the sun can sometimes uh, create environments that will foster the, they'll cultivate the growth of bacteria oh. and whatnot. So it's no wonder that the sun and Apollo are associated with okay. disease along the same line. Apollo is the catcher of mice. Apollo is the mouser, the mouse god, Sminthus in Greek. Okay. It seems a little bit of an odd and random connection. Yeah, I was like... But it's not a coincidence, I think, that... Reepicheep the mouse I, is so yeah. inclined toward the sun in this book. I think if there's anything, though, to keep in mind with regard to the sun here, it is alchemy, changing one thing to another. Yeah. We'll, we'll explore that quite a bit more as we go on. Gold shows up quite a bit. That's, that's maybe one of the most obvious ones. Caspian has golden hair. Oh, the, yeah. the, the lion on the flag and on all of the engravings in the Dawn Treader. Whereas the, the lion Aslan normally shows up as red, crimson, the mm. color of Jupiter, in this book, he's always gold. Oh, wow. Huh. Very interesting. Should we dive into maybe their stop at the Lone Island? Do tell. So there are these slave traders that capture them. And I think the character of Pug, who is the slave trader who captures them, kind of represents being like disillusioned with greed. And also the governor there as well. He's mm -hmm. sort of just this 
bumbling guy who just cares about money. Governor Gumpus. Isn't that a great name? Gumpus. Yes. When Caspian is set free, basic, so basically what happens, they come to the Lone Islands, the Lord Byrne is there, Caspian is set free from slavery. What they decide to do is to go to Governor Gumpus pretending that they have a larger force and a larger army than they actually yeah. have. They fly the signals on the Dawn Treader to make it look as if they're signaling to other ships that they don't have. They come in in a great procession. They start whipping the guards into shape. And they say, basically, Governor Gumpus, you haven't paid your tribute. You need to abolish the slave trade, too, which has been yes. happening on the island. So they're bringing justice and bringing things back to life. They go, they flip over the guy's table. It's everything awesome. is scattered It's the a floor. great moment. And it's so funny because I think that Gumpus embodies a modern inclination similar to the way Eustace does. Everyone is saying when they come in, they kind of sleepily say, no interviews without appointments except between 9 and 10 a.m. Yeah, every second yeah. Saturday of the month. So it's very much, okay, we're by the clock, we have the schedule, this the sort of red tape paperwork mentality to keep us from actually living right. up to our responsibilities. That's taken to be kind of the dark side of a modern tendency, right. I think. The dark side, no mm. pun intended, opposite of the sun. They're sleepy, kind of opposite of what the sun, I think, would would have for them. Their objection to abolishing slavery and the Lone Islands is profit. Don't you care? That's not economically feasible. Um, this is bringing so much money and revenue to us. We need these yeah. things. So that's part of the fixation on profit. But I feel like that's where the greed shows up because they have yes. like these stories that they tell themselves that mm-hmm. like they need to do the slave trade in order to have profit. And Caspian's like, um, guys, you can just do this and it's actually hurting. You'll get along just fine yeah. without your slaves. We Let all- me read the quotation here because the exchange that they have is a very interesting one. Like- I'll read the part where they come to confront Gumpus. They flip over the table. Caspian says to Gumpus, I want to know why you have permitted this abominable and unnatural traffic in slaves to grow up here, contrary to the ancient custom and usage of our dominions. Necessary, unavoidable, said his sufficiency, an essential part of the economic development of the islands, I assure you. Our present burst of prosperity depends on it. What need have you of slaves? For export, your majesty. Sell them to Kalorman mostly. And we have other markets. We are a great center of the trade. In other words, said Caspian, you don't need them. Tell me what purpose they serve except to put money into the pockets of such as Pug, the slave trader. Your majesty's tender years, said Gumpus with what was meant to be a fatherly smile, hardly make it possible that you should understand the economic problem involved. I have statistics. I have graphs. I have... Tender as my years may be, said Caspian, I believe I understand the slave trade from within quite as well as your sufficiency. Hmm. And I do not see that it brings into the islands meat or bread or beer or wine or timber or cabbages or books or instruments of music or horses or armor or anything else worth having. But whether it does or not... It must be stopped. But that would be putting the clock back, gasped the governor. Have you no idea of progress, of development? I have seen them both in an egg, said Caspian. We call it going bad in Narnia. This trade must stop. 
a lot of fascinating and beautiful things there. One is the pathological modernity of Gumpus. Yes. He is fixated on profit. He sneers and puts down anything that would confront his desire for profit or his desire for progress. Yeah. He's fixated on progress too. And he justifies it with statistics, graphs, numbers. Oh, yeah. Very pathologically modern. But here is what Caspian retorts to him and what Lewis says to the ailments of modernity in general. I have seen progress and development in an egg too, and it's called going bad. That's Lewis's conservative impulse going up. Progress and development? No, this is just spoiling of a rotten egg. Yeah. It's... I love how Caspian talks about whatever the numbers may say, he's actually experienced being on the receiving end of this oppressive system. And so he actually really does know how wrong it is. Yeah. And I think think that whether Lewis was really fully intending that or not, I think it underscores the purpose of of listening to those who have experienced uh, the sharp edge of oppressive systems that dominate our society. Which is the mark of a truly great leader, which I think Caspian is, and we're seeing that. And just wrapping up talking about the Lone Islands, I remember as a kid just thinking like this was a great way to start the story, their first stop, because I just love a good kidnapping story, Mm. which is probably weird. I don't know. I just like the excitement of it and then the rescue. It's all quite thrilling. So this was a very thrilling start to the adventure, I think. Great start to the adventure. There is so much that could be talked about, but I think that we've said quite a lot. We can delve into some more things in our future episodes. I think so. Let's go over our top quotes. Do you got one, Stephen? Actually, do you want to do the top quotes theme song? Top quotes, do 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 do. Top quotes, do 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 do. Top quotes, do 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 do. Top quotes, ha ah, ah, ah. Oh yeah, I like that one. Top quotes. It's a good one. Got to do that one next time. What are your top quotes, Shannon? Okay. I think the first one goes without question, and we've mentioned it before. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he (laughs) almost deserved it. That is a very memorable one. It is so worth saying again because, again, I think it's just the best opening line ever. That was almost in my top quotes. However... Just because it's so memorable already, I felt like I should probably choose something else because choosing that, you know, just for some variety. You know what? You do you, boo. You know, that's what I tend to do. One of my top quotes is in, which chapter is this? Chapter two, when Reepicheep is talking about the rhyme that the dryad spoke over him. Mm. Where sky and water meet, doubt not Reepicheep, there is the utter east. He says... I do not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. There's so much poetry in that. There's I so feel much like. poetry. It's enchanting. It's that yes. longing. It's the Zainzucht, as we talked about before. Like, I don't know just what it is, but it's, it's just there. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. All right. I got another one. 
This is when they first come on to the Dawn Treader. The other two, Edmund and Lucy, were delighted with the Dawn Treader, and when they returned to the cabin after supper and saw the whole western sky lit up with an immense crimson sunset and felt the quiver of the ship and tasted the salt on their lips and thought of uplands on the easter rim of the world, Lucy felt she was almost too happy to speak. Mm. I love that one. There's such like beautiful imagery and just that feeling that fills you up so much that you're just so happy you can't even say anything. My second top quote is also about Reepicheep, perhaps not surprisingly. Reepicheep, who never felt that the ship was getting on fast enough, loved to sit on the bulwarks far forward, just beside the dragon's head, gazing out at the eastern horizon and singing softly his little chirruping voice, the song the dryad had made for him. That image of him out at the front of the ship. Keeping longing, his eyes straining, on what's important. Exactly. Yeah. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward mm, what is behead. That's good. He presses on toward the goal. Yeah. The heavenward call, as St. Paul says in Philippians. Yeah. My third one is one of those instances where Lewis takes a minute to actually talk to the reader. He says, most of us, I suppose, have a secret country, but for most of us, it is only an imaginary country. Edmund and Lucy were luckier than other people in that respect. (laughs) Their secret country was real. Mm, how does this resonate with you? Well, I think it's so interesting to hear this like as a child because I don't know about you, but I had my own little secret countries I mm. would go to, my own imaginary lands. But you, it kind of becomes more real to you because you think like, I wonder if my land will come true, you know? <laughs> I wonder if Lewis would say that there is a sense in which your land will come oh, true. There is sort of that something, that inner longing in your soul of which imaginary lands are echoes but it's Aslan's country beyond the horizon mm. for which your soul longs yep. as Reepicheeps did. There you go. Tell me your third one. I, my third one is also a Reepicheep quote. Go rape. Okay, so in chapter three, when they're captured by the slave traders, by the pirates, he says, coward, poltroon. <laughs> poltroon is just such a great word, which by the way, I looked it up and it just means utter coward. No, no, wait, wait you got to say this in the high pitch Reepicheep voice. Coward. Poltroon. <laughs> and I think he calls Eustace a poltroon at another oh, point yeah. in the story. Poltroon. Throw such a shade. wonderful word. Poltroon. It is. And, and at another point, um, he's insulted by the pirates. The, one of the pirates says, uh, did one of you train this mouse to talk like this? And, quote, this so infuriated Reepicheep that in the end, the number of things he thought of saying all at once nearly suffocated him, <laughs> and he became silent. <laughs> so good. <laughs> That's just so Reepicheep. Oh my gosh, I love it. I have another Reepicheep moment here too. This is when uh, Drinny and the captain is talking, when he's talking about how uh, Trumpkin is the regent of Narnia while they're away. And Drinian says, Loyal as a badger, ma'am, and valiant as a, as a mouse, said Drinian. <laughs> He had been going to say as a lion, but had noticed Reepicheep's eyes fixed on him. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, boy. Good old Reepicheep. Next week, we will be covering chapters five through eight. But, Stephen, we have a telegram. We do? Yes, we do. We have a telegram. Stephen, would you like to give us a telegrams theme song? Telegrams. (laughs) 
And that's it. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, we got a message from Ina Ghoul on our Facebook page. Here's what she said. I was listening to the episode on Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 15 through 17, part two, in which you discuss the quote, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes an end, a sort of quietness. I had not specially noticed the quote before, but Stephen wondered how many children would understand it. Lewis, as a child, experienced some significant darkness with his mom passing away, the boarding schools, etc. I think because of that, he understood in a unique way that children are not often as blind to darkness as adults think them to be. Andrew Peterson, another children's book writer, holds to that opinion as well. As I'm rereading the books, I find I actually have more respect for them. Mm. As a child, I disliked the Narnia series because I felt that they were too light and fluffy. Mm. I did not feel that Lewis treated his children audience seriously and did not give true weight to the darkness that some children sadly experience even at a young age. When Shannon read that quote, I realized I had given up on Narnia series too soon because Lewis did take it seriously. In my defense as a child, I did not know that Lewis had experienced significant hardship as a child. Hmm. So the uh, so the reference to that kind of deep misery actually adds a necessary depth. Yeah. Um, and is not above the head of the child audience. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Anagul. That's a really good good point. A to really bring up. beautiful insight. And I think Lewis, you know, I think we see later on in the series that Lewis isn't afraid of dealing with some really gritty subjects. Mm. Um, so that will be interesting to unpack. But I think especially here, he's connecting children with experiencing that deep darkness and grief which is important because not all children have these beautiful childhoods where they become kings and queens and everything's <laughs> magical. It, I think it makes it relatable because yeah. those children see themselves in that and therefore yeah. they matter in that darkness that they are experiencing. Yeah, I think it's a validation yeah. to it and a context for it. It's good. So thank you so much for sharing that, Aina Ghul. Uh, if you want to write into us and share an opinion or thought that you had, you can write us at beyondthelamppostpodcast at gmail.com. And you can leave us a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Check out our Facebook page. And I think that's about all we got for today. So remember, don't be a poltroon <laughs> and join us next time on Beyond the Lamppost. Jacob Parada. Check out more of his music at jacobparada.com.